Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on. The 2020 Formula One season continues to take shape, with the Azerbaijan, Singapore and Japanese Grand Prix now officially cancelled. But with plenty of circuits willing to take their place, there's still lots of room to manoeuvre to ensure there are at least 15 races this year. I'm Ed Straw and joining me for chat on all things F1 are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Scott, how are you? I I hear you're thinking about a relatively early attendance to to a a race circuit. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm good, thank you. Um, yeah, with all of the schedules now taking place for for a, f- a few championships internationally and nationally, uh, among all the excitement of Formula One getting its act together, um, the Porsche Carrera Cup Scandinavia has sort of re- has announced like a revised schedule, uh, and the second round of the new schedule is the I think they call it the Midnight Sun race, which is in uh, I've got to pronounce this right, Cholefdior. Uh, in the in the north, uh, and it's taking place in midweek, uh, I believe. So it will be on the Wednesday evening, uh, Wednesday afternoon, and Wednesday evening before the first the, before the, the Austrian Grand Prix. So I'm trying to work out if it's actually doable uh, to 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 go there and then and get back. Um, but that's the. <laughs> Having experienced national racing in the UK, I'm well aware of the amount of travelling that sometimes you get sort of roped into to go from uh, to go to to the far flung circuits. In Sweden, it's even more aggressive because it is a ridiculously long country. I think you'd be wrong not to go. Uh, yeah, I would like to, but the thing is, Hjelftiore um, is uh, is very very north in in Scotland. I think I'm going to see Scotland. my geography is not great, but it's basically I say Scotland, didn't I? You did. Sorry, yeah. So Hjelftior is very, very north in Sweden. The reason I said Scotland is my geography is not great and I always compare it sort of side by side with the UK because that sort of gives me a better better reference. So where Stockholm is, Stockholm is basically the 
just beyond the northernmost point of Scotland. Uh, and Hlefdior is up by Iceland, basically. It's like it's like 800 kilometres or something to drive from Stockholm to Hlefdior. It's like going from Brighton to Edinburgh, basically. Uh, so the sun basically barely sets there. It, I think it sets at half past 11 at night and rises again at 1am, which is why it's called the Midnight Sun Race. Uh, so I'd love to go. It'd be really, really cool. But it is an absolute monster undertaking geographically. I don't think I'd get back in time for, for media day uh, for the Austrian Grand Prix. I'm now slightly suspicious about whether you really live in Sweden at all. Are you sure it's not some other country beginning with S? You, in, land or, you introduced or Sudan me. Or? You introduced me as being in Scotland a few podcasts ago, Ed. So don't you start. You, you're, you're as bad at this as I am. Maybe I exposed an essential truth. <laughs> maybe that's what maybe i've just maybe you've convinced me i'm actually in scotland <laughs> <laughs> it's very 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 possible uh also in far-flung northern reaches is uh is mark hughes and you you've recently prevailed in a in a battle with your dog to see who would be the guest on this podcast and i'm not entirely sure whether i'm happy with the outcome actually <laughs> yeah baxter um my um he's a schnauzer poodle sort of um amalgam I was taking up residence in the room that I normally do the podcast from, so um, I've relocated just to uh, keep them from um, interfering too much because you can guarantee that if um, if I sat down there, he wouldn't be uh, content to um, play a p- passive role, let's say. Um, so I've just left them um, resting, sleeping, and I've uh, relocated to a different room. You could argue that we'd actually add the level of insight if we had Baxter contributing, to be uh, to be honest. We have had Gary Anderson's dog turn up on the Gary Anderson F1 show podcast occasionally, so it's not unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, Baxter could... Um, Baxter has got a speed gene. He is, he is very much into going fast. Um, I don't think there's much insight behind it. I think it's just, just joy. <laughs> That's exactly what dogs are for. It's kind of like a racing driver who's all commitment and uh, no finesse, isn't it? Just... Uh, you, you question the uh, the precision, but you can't doubt the enthusiasm. So that's uh, that's what dogs are for. Moving off such canine-based topics, let's talk a bit about the calendar, Mark. We've lost Singapore, Suzuka and Baku. That's that's quite bad news, really, because they're three distinctive, challenging circuits. But it's not really a surprise to hear we've here we've lost them. But those, which which one are you going to miss the most? Um, as an event, probably Singapore. Um, uh, as a track, Suzuka and then Baku is often crazy, unpredictable fun as well. But Singapore is a special event. Um, and it being a nighttime race, by the time I finished riding, the, the daylight's coming in through the media center windows. I'm sure you're very familiar with that. And um, walking back into those warm, muggy streets that have been a racetrack all the time that you've been there and were a racetrack last time you saw. And now coming out, and in the, it's just full of rush hour traffic, and there's bus stops, taxis, traffic lights. It, it's quite a surreal thing. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, that's that's the one I'd miss the most. But uh, street events like that and Baku are obviously um, the the most challenging to organise. I'm um, at the moment, and the, you not only have difficulty of access, you know, putting up the grandstands and things like that during the. Um, this time but it's also we don't know if there's going to be if it's going to be feasible to have mass gatherings there in time so you have to organize these things much further out than you do for a permanent circuit so yeah singapore and baku the casualties of that um japan is saying it's um 
it, it, the reason it's given is because it's not sure if the mass gathering um, restriction will be lifted in time, and also I think they've got um, they don't want to do anything which um, m might compromise their hosting of the Olympics. So it's it's a very very tricky situation. But as you say, there are plenty of other permanent venues um, stood in line waiting to uh, take their place. Yeah, well, Scott, obviously you followed this very closely, the story about the evolving calendar, so you'll have a little bit of insight on what's going to take shape. We know there's some European venues that could be added. We know there's some some double headers that, that could be added. So right now, what do you think are the leading candidates to, to take their place? So I reckon what we're going to have is we've had this eight-race European schedule confirmed already. I'm expecting two races in Europe, an extra two races in Europe at least, um, and then I think, uh, obviously, Russia comes into that equation, but I'm just waiting waiting exactly to see sort of what happens with Sochi. So the, the way I see it playing out is two extra races in sort of Central Europe, maybe one at Hockenheim, one at Mugello, or two at Hockenheim. I would imagine, based on simplicity, logistics, etc., F1 would be quite keen to have two races in the same venue, so maybe I reckon 10 races on that schedule plus whatever Russia does, whether that's one or two races at Sochi and then one or two races at across each of China, Bahrain and Abu Dhabi. I think that will probably be the run-in. I think we'll end up skipping the Americas completely and I think Vietnam will shuffle to, to next year, just delay its inaugural race to avoid having two Hanoi events in the space of of six months i think that covers off the the, the rest of the the running i think we just got to the point where it's going to be is now very realistic to have between 15 and 18 races because we're sacrificing variety for for the sake of pragmatism and the double headers also aid that because it means you get two for the price of one if you if you can get somewhere but it's interesting that's uh america's leg obviously there's three races uh, Austin, Mexico, and Brazil in uh, in the in the Americas. Brazil looks looks extremely dubious. What, Mark, what do you think about the chance of Mexico and and the USA? Because it's kind of a movable situation. It is, yeah. And Mexico has already put out a statement saying, as far as they're concerned, they're they're ready to host the event, um, as per already announced. The, um, I think the whole thing will um, hinge upon what happens in um, in the states. And if the, they think that the uh, restrictions on crowd gatherings um, will be eased in time, um, I'm hearing that Austin actually does come back onto the radar. Um, Austin can only happen if, if there are paying people there. The, the, way, the way the race is structured and funded, it can only happen if, um, if it's a normal, a conventional Grand Prix, let's say. Um, and the thinking is... That, as as things stand today, um, the the restrictions on a crowd gathering may may well be eased um, in time to make that event viable. And if that becomes viable, then then Mexico um, becomes viable as well, because otherwise you're going over just for one race. Um, so yes, but it's a very with a very big um, question mark beside it, of of course, because the um, situation is changing all the time in terms of uh, what the the R rate of the virus is doing and what what they're going to have to how they're going to have to adjust to to how that evolves. Um, quite a lot that could happen between now and November, but uh, it's 
yeah, I agree with Scott. It's probably if you had to um, put some money down now and say what sh- what shape will the calendar be? I, I agree that it probably most likely won't have an America's leg, but it's not off the radar completely. And Brazil is interesting as well because while there's a general feeling that going there wouldn't be a, a very good idea given the situation there, the the race organisers they, they made a statement recently saying that if the the race were cancelled on the the F1 side, then there's a there's a kind of penalty financial penalty attached to that, even though it's a free race. So obviously there's a little bit going on there with regards to the the question of who does the cancelling, etc. And uh, that's going to be an interesting one to follow because I'm not sure we can rely on the uh, Brazilian government under the current regime to be doing the uh, doing the sensible uh, thing on that one. So that could create a bit of an added complication for uh, for F1. But yeah, I mean it's a real shame of losing the circuits we've lost and losing into Lagos, but. It's the same thing as when, as with the uh, the crowdless Grand Prix. Yeah, it's a shame, but it's either you have what you can have or you don't have anything. So yeah, you know, it seems to be a fairly simple decision to make, and F one's F one's done a good job to to get this kind of calendar together. Uh, Scott, we should talk about Bahrain because that circuit actually has five approved suitable circuit configurations for for F one. Ross Braun recently suggested using the outer circuit configuration, which uh, you could, I guess, generously describe as a as a pseudo oval. I mean, it's not an oval, but it's it's sort of a perimeter circuit, for want of a better word, and suggest that's under consideration. Do you think that's realistic? Uh, <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a nice idea. I I think I think it's realistic. I just don't think it will happen because. Ross also sort of mentioned that there are other factors involved with changing the configurations and you'd only have a few days to do it. So you'd have to completely change the um, uh, the, the the infrastructure that you have in place for timing, for example, was one of the examples that, that, that Braun gave. I don't know how big an undertaking that is, so whether that's actually doable within a couple of days, I'm not entirely sure. But if you look at the... We we did a, a piece on, on, on the race um, which showed what that pseudo oval looks like uh it was quite there were quite a few flippant replies to that story basically saying that ross needs to have some geometry lessons if he thinks that that's an oval but he to be fair to him what he actually said was there's a nice sort of almost oval track so that is as much of a qualification of calling something an oval as he could possibly have done the whole the, the reason he mentioned it it's sort of like the the old like ring like circuits uh so it's basically you go up towards what is i think officially turn four so the long straight up to where vettel spun fighting with hamilton last year um and then when you go right out of turn four instead of diving down into the 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 sweeps down to the hairpin you flick left and there's sort of like a couple of like s bends that run all the way around the outer perimeter of the the circuit a, a flat out right kink that you rejoin where the penultimate corner is on the Grand Prix track so that long right hander that then becomes the 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 straight down towards the final corner so that's where the track rejoins so then you so you'd be hurtling down to the final corner at some rate of knots um and I think it's it's nine or ten proper corners on on that track so Ross is right that would be loads of fun it's a grade one circuit so you'd be able to do it but I think Bahrain would be quite keen to have something cool and different to 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 show off as a as a second race um but it's it's the sort of thing where it's it'd be a very short lap uh it would be interesting to see whether the cars could hold up 
to the challenge because it would be a really fast lap as well. Um, plus there are going to be other logistical issues around sort of making sure everything's in place and can be moved in the space of two or three days. So it might be that they just think it's more hassle than it's worth. It looks like a really fun circuit and it would seem logical to make use of the fact Bahrain has multiple configurations. I mean, that would be an extreme circuit. But of course, as well, Mark, I think it's the endurance circuit it's called. That was used for the Grand Prix in 2010, wasn't it? It wasn't a particularly memorable Grand Prix, admittedly, although that was partly because it was the first race after refueling was uh, was banned again. So there was a certain amount of conservatism uh, going on. But it would seem at least they should be using that one for an alternative, provided they can get around the timing challenges, just to create some some variety in the in the double header. Given that they've they've got the circuits approved, because that's the problem with most tracks, there are alternative configurations for all sorts of circuits, but very few of them have the necessary F one approvals, and that's quite a complicated, in some ways, costly process. So Bahrain, you know, Bahrain could host three three Grand Prix triple header on three different circuits if it wanted to. Yeah, and um, we did use that track in. 2010, not the one Scott was talking about, not the pseudo oval, but the the um, hybrid of, of those the normal track and that one where you turn left out after turn four and go through that little loop. Um, I remember it was it was very unpopular with the teams and the drivers. It was very bumpy. Um, it was causing all sorts of problems. Um, but you know needs must, and you do need to differentiate between these two the the, the double headers as much as possible and. We will have had um, several double headers already by that time if all goes according to plan. And so, if uh, they turn out to be too similar, so that in a few weeks' time you can't remember which one, what happened at which one of the two Austria races or the two Silverstone races, there might be a bit more uh, impetus to do something different. I know we got slightly different tyre compounds in the, the two Silverstone races, but. Something a bit more fundamental than that. May, there may be a, a bit of pressure to 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 act upon uh, whatever transpires at those earlier double headers. Um, so yes, I can see the logic of it, and um, I think really, as as in all these things, I think everybody is keen just to make it work as as well as it possibly can. And I don't think really that there's going to be any um, any of the usual opposing um, politics about various decisions. I think everybody um, from teams, um, government body, Liberty, uh, TV companies, that everybody is try- trying to make this work in a spirit of cooperation. And I think if it's generally agreed that um, we need to do something um, to differentiate the doubleheaders a bit more, then if it's uh, logistically possible, um, it, it, it will happen. I was going to say that the uh, the point Mark makes about distinguishing between the races is really important because back in my Formula E reporting days, that was always the frustrating thing about their doubleheaders, which were literally one on Saturday, one on Sunday, because they both had the same name. So for London, for example, it was just London E-Pre 1 and London E-Pre 2. And it was like, well, so like you need to be the races need need to have individual significance and it won't be enough really to just do what we've done for austria and and silverstone where you've got the austrian and styrian grand prix and then you've got the british and the 70th anniversary grand prix like when it comes down to it months down the line or years down the line you're not going to remember it as as that and people will be muddling up was that silverstone one or silverstone two like in their head you need something that's going to properly distinguish it and but for Bahrain, 
I don't think you'd ever go down this route because I think it would probably be crazy. But Bahrain, you've also got the option, I suppose, of a daytime or a race or or, or, or something like that. I don't know what the, the, the climate is actually like for, for Bahrain at the, in, in November, if that's more realistic than it is at, at its normal time of, of year, should we say. But they've got to do something. And the, what they've done for Silverstone, where they've slightly tweaked the compound range so that I think it's the second race has a one step softer set of compounds, but that's just not enough. I, I appreciate the effort and maybe it will mix uh, mix things up a little bit, but there needs to be something different. We've got a unique situation for the 2020 season. And if the if the pragmatic way of, of ensuring we've got a season is to have multiple races at the same venue, then there has to be a, a, a proper bit of creative thinking to, to distinguish between them. I think holding a, a, a race in the daytime at Bahrain is perfectly realistic because they used to do it for, for a long time. Obviously, teams could argue that they won't have planned their cooling for it. But looking at a, a very, very brief glance at the average temperatures for November in Bahrain, doesn't look like it's ridiculously warm. Looks like it might be a bit cooler than it would have been for other races there. And, and I agree that, I mean, that's a really easy way at least to to differentiate it because at least then when you sort of picture the race in your uh, in your mind, one will have uh, have darkness as a background, one will have light as a background. So that's, that's one way of... Uh, one way of doing it and of course Abu Dhabi also has that option as well because that's the the kind of dusk race isn't it it's uh, uh, as night is falling so that there's things that can be done there to uh, to differentiate them but uh, yeah I think anything F1 can do to change things will be necessary the one thing that is interesting is although Mark you're quite right about the spirit of cooperation and we're all in it together but if for example that Bahrain question is is up in the air about configurations and we let's say it's a few races into the season and you start, might start to get a season taking clearer shape and teams starting to be more aware of the the kind of relative performance of their car in certain conditions. You might start to see a little bit of pushback if if a team fighting for the championship were to think that one configuration or other might favour them. So I think once the once the shooting starts, so to speak, this year, there, there will surely be a little bit of that because they can argue, well, we know we're going there. We know the race is going to happen. So you know we're within our rights to to argue about the configuration you see a little bit of that happening once we get into a proper fight oh yeah of course it's it's like when you ask the the, um, teams to come together to come up with a set of regulations that they they think would work in meeting an objective and and they all do that in the spirit of cooperation and as soon as those regulations are announced they're instantly those same people are looking for ways around those rules that they've just made up so yes of course that'll happen that's just competition that's how it works but um you know whatever it is um whatever whatever works uh, i think uh, as you were saying earlier on i think we just have to go with and accept that uh, we have something at all to have a championship at all is going to be um, a, a fantastic result under the circumstances. Yeah, that's very true. I'm, I'm quite interested to see if there are two Bahrains, what they call the second one, because there's no kind of historical names they can call on no. there, aren't they? I mean, Abu Dhabi, you could have a UAE Grand Prix, couldn't you? Because obviously it's in the UAE. Mm. But Bahrain isn't in the UAE, it's its own place. So that, that, that would be an interesting challenge to come up with a name. Scott looks like he's got a name. I was just wondering if they, because it's Bahrain, isn't it, that has the the gives the permission for the other races in that sort of region, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a Middle yes. East Grand Prix. Mid- Middle, yeah, that's what I was going to suggest, the Middle Eastern Grand Prix. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Although, you never know. If they run, start running out of circuits, they could even go to some of the other uh, Middle Eastern licensed circuits like Dubai or I Kuwait. Was thinking, I was thinking Dubai was not a, an outrageous uh, option because it's... Um, there's the difference, isn't there? Within the grade one circuits, there are the grade one circuits by F1 designation and grade one circuits that look like they might actually be able to host a, a Formula One race. And I, I would put Dubai in that category, definitely. Uh, yeah, I haven't been to Dubai or Australia for quite some time, but yeah, it was certainly built with that uh, with that possibility in mind. And it'd be quite an interesting circuit, actually. It's, it's, uh, it's got a bit of undulation as well, uh, Dubai. Contrary to the perception of things, is a bit flat in that uh, in that area, so it could be interesting. But I guess uh, F1's probably keeping those in its back pocket. So if uh, in a worst case scenario where basically no races can happen uh, in that phase between the end of Europe and uh, and the Middle East races, then you could uh, we could have. Uh, but remember when we had GP2 Asia, it could be a little bit like that. So we could have uh, races in that region. Although GP2 Asia in the end went to Imola, so uh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows what's gonna what's gonna happen uh, uh, with with that one? Uh, make make sense of that one. I won't get into the details of why that's uh, why that went on, but anyway, uh, let's move a little bit on to on track action because we have seen a Formula One car on track uh, in anger. Mark uh, Mercedes did their two day test last week at Silverstone with a two year old car. We saw various images and some video and bits and pieces, everyone in masks and social distancing. I think what what does that tell us about F one's new normal? Well, yeah, that test was as much as. Um about trying out the new covered protocols of running an F1 car on track from the garage and the operations point of view as it was a test of a, a car. It was a two-year-old car. Um, and it also gave Bottas and Hamilton a chance to get rid of any rustiness that might have formed during an enforced layoff, although Lewis was saying he didn't feel any, he felt absolutely as normal. Um, so the discipline would have been to work on the car and get it fine-tuned to the specifics of the day and the track and getting everyone back into the rhythm of their their roles, but just as an exercise. And it was really um, about doing it within the new measures that teams are going to have to operate um, during the forthcoming um, Grand Prix. So um, I think it was, it was lovely to hear that um, engine note going down the pit lane. Um, and it's amazing how quickly that it sort of... Um, it had become like a when when I heard it, it, it I, I was suddenly nostalgic, and it was it's only you know it seems such a a recent thing that we haven't had any racing, but all, when you hear that sound, is there was just something, yeah, that that made made me think, oh wow, that that sounds that sounds great, that's fantastic. What is that? Um, and just 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 because we've been starved of it for these few months. And you went through your Can-Am phase during the break of, of watching that, so that should have satisfied your your need for for noisy racing cars in that period. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't sound as good as Can-Am cars, but yeah, there you go. <laughs> I was once testing at Silverstone in MX-5 when a Can-Am car came past me just into cops, pulled right in front of me. Absolutely astonishing, uh, astonishing sound. Brilliant uh, to get that sort of view of it. Scott, you went through the FIA's quite lengthy document about restarting racing. Uh, so that's given us various clues about how it's going to work. What what did you take from uh, trawling your way through that document? Yeah, thanks for reminding me of my highlight of the week. That was, um, it was, a, I wouldn't say it was a labour of love. I would say that was a testament to commitment and obligation. <laughs> it's a very long document and there's going to be um, additional specific code of conducts for different championships, I think. Um, issued in in the coming coming days or weeks so 
So basically, the gist of that is largely what we know Formula One's going to do, because I think the FIA and Formula One's priority has been to, to get the season started. It's been the major project in terms of restarting major motorsport, certainly outside of, uh, of, of America. So the F1 guidelines that have then been approved by national governments, it's understandable that these then form the basis of of wider uh, wider motorsport return. The FIA said that from the from the very beginning. So nothing sort of stand out in terms of new information but a re a reiteration of uh of the need for for testing where possible of certain precautionary measures so making sure that there are backup officials and stuff like this in case for example the clerk of the course or the the the, the race director or something test positive for it and needs to be shuffled out do you then have everyone in place to then move up the chain basically um lots of specific details about marshalling because i i personally had quite a few messages from marshals basically saying well we've not been told anything or they haven't been, there hasn't been any public information about this because it was all being 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 dealt with so there are stipulations in place for marshals to basically act like the teams are going to act so in the instance where you can't do your job while social distancing, you will basically have to operate in that cluster for the duration of the, the, the week. So it means small groups of marshals like small groups of race teams and small groups of other officials operating together. So staying in the same place, commuting together, only socialising with one another and not going and mixing with other, other groups, that sort of thing. On the racing side, one of the interesting suggestions was if you can't do certain things within the schedule without breaking the rules, such as, for example, the the, the, the grid build-up before a formation lap, which is a big part of a, a Formula 1 Grand Prix, but it's also things like British touring cars, where that's very, very common. Loads of guests on the grid, uh, all the teams sort of mingling, personnel mingling, grid walks with TV, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, we know that that's going to be reduced massively anyway because there won't be any guests uh, in, in attendance for, for, these, for these closed events. But the suggestion was if, you, if a championship still feels like it can't do that procedure safely, then why not maybe scrap that process entirely and just have formation laps starting from from the pit lane, from the team's garages. Now, as I understand it, that's not going to happen in Formula 1. They're going to keep the grid procedure, uh, but just probably in a slightly reduced capacity rather than everyone being out there, what is it, 20 minutes before the start of the race or half an hour before the start of the race. So so that is probably going to change. We might see other championships, smaller championships, go that route because I guess there's less for them to lose by, by binning it off, basically. But it's just interesting, and it's really good as well to see that sort of stuff made public so that we can actually understand and appreciate the amount of effort that's gone into it. I think the documents in total are more than 18,000 words of safety protocols and guidance. Uh, and we know that it's to the highest level because it's been approved by, for example, the Austrian government. So I, I think it's, it's very good. It will help a lot of other championships outside of Formula One get started again. But from a Formula One point of view, there's been so much information and so much talked about over the last few weeks there's nothing really nothing's really changed on that front it feels like it's been it's been set for for a while because that's the plan that's been formally presented and it's important to note what you said there that all of these races they have to get specific government permission for the provisions that are in place so this isn't just a, a kind of oh we'll do all these sorts of things and a vague idea it has to be a proper formulated plan that's that stands up to to scrutiny which is not a a trivial thing to to put together and obviously 
you know, Silverstone, for example, Stuart Pringle was interviewed on Radio 5 recently, said they're still working on some of their little details and having to be willing to adapt and change as, uh, as things shift about. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be it's going to be curious, though, isn't it? Uh, some drivers have already talked about it. Lewis Hamilton said it's going to be strange, these ghost races that they're being called, because it's going to be even quieter than a test, because there'll be no one in the grandstands, there'll be no fans or just anywhere. So it will be a bit like a... A, a ghost town but uh yeah it's going to be interesting to see what's like are you, are you looking forward to seeing this this slightly strange uh manifestation of f1 mark i don't know if looking forward to it's the right word because um on the one hand uh, you'll you'll feel um, sad for how different it is to normal where everybody's you know, there and enjoying it and adding to the atmosphere but um it's better than no, no racing at all and it's um it gets us underway again and yeah so Better, better than nothing, but um, yeah, I still look forward to the day when we, we get back to normal, obviously. It's going to be particularly great, given that we start off with a run of races that are, that are massive fan festivals, really, aren't they? Austria, Silverstone, Hungary, Spa, Monza. These are, these are hugely attended, uh, attended races, aren't they? And very, very uh, popular. So that's going to be interesting to, uh, in, interesting to follow. One thing that's quite interesting is, obviously, we, you mentioned um, Hockenheim seems to be at the front of the queue for European races, but Mugello and Imola is the other one that has have been mentioned. Which which of those two circuits, the Italian ones, would you prefer? Because Mugello obviously has never held a, a world championship, uh, a world championship Grand Prix. Imola obviously a famous circuit. If you had a choice between those two, which would you go for, Scott? You can choose first. Um, I I think it would be quite. I just think from a pure interested to see how it goes point of view, say Mugello. Yep, interesting circuit to see. Mark, would you would you prefer just go, just to go back to Imola? They've each got their appeal. I mean, the Mugello, just because it's it's different, we haven't been there before. It's always interesting to try something new. Um, but Imola is a beautiful place, a beautiful circuit, and um, you know, I, I wouldn't be disappointed if if it, if it was that. Simple enough. We'll go to we'll go to all three of those extra European venues. Then that'll uh, that'll make it uh, straightforward enough. Should we just go on our own European tour as a podcast? Just like sod the F one calendar and the the schedule, and let's just go around a bunch of cool European F one tracks. Well, there'll be no uh, no lack of places we could go to. There's some uh, yeah, some very cool uh, circuits with the some of them with world championship history, some of them uh, some of them not. Scott, there has been some sort of F1 racing of the kind uh, with uh, George Russell, Williams driver, grabbing a few headlines lately in the virtual Grand Prix events. He's cl- he clinched the unofficial title even before Sunday's finale in Montreal. So do, do you think we should care about uh, about that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a very blunt way of putting it. Uh, yeah, I think it's been it's been a nice uh, it's been a nice filler, hasn't it? During the gap, um, there's been some proper engagement from from some some very entertaining guys George and, and and Charles Leclerc have been at the forefront of that uh, and they've taken it very seriously and put a lot of time and effort in some of the racing's been been really good in it um it's been a little bit disappointing to see a couple of drivers sort of turn up for one race and then not come back but i suppose that's just the nature of people's private lives and schedules and sort of whether you're really interested in playing that video game or not um full marks to pierre gasly for committing to the virtual le mans 24 hours and the uh the virtual canadian grand prix uh a hell of a double header uh one of the beauties of esports is that you can race in these uh different championships different continents on the same day so <laughs> that that's 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 been very good but i am 
it's been what's been really good about the the, the F one virtual series is they've not really cared about being they've not really been one hundred percent determined to just do a faithful recreation of, of the, the real world. So I've, I have actually enjoyed the fact that they've put some some random VIPs in there, sports stars, seeing, you know, as a football fan, seeing the likes of Sergio Aguero and Pierre Aubameyang turn up in Formula One races has been quite funny. Um, and it's not detracted from the show because the level at the front of the field is so high and you've got the likes of Russell and Leclerc doing it. So I actually think that it's been quite a nice little... Um, Nice little combination. There's not been any controversies like we had in, in IndyCar with drivers deliberately taking each other out. Um, there's been a few mini controversies within that, but I, I just think it's been been a very, very nice use of, uh, of everybody's time, to be honest. And it's ending at the right moment as well, because I just feel like you're going to get... We, we had quite an early saturation of esports within this this period, and the the strongest championships have shone through, like the Virtual Grand Prix series and... You can call this tribal or not, but the all-star stuff from the from from the race, especially the Legends Trophy, has just been a really enduring, popular, enjoyable element. Um, but there's a risk at certain things like the the F1 stuff would just sort of roll on a little bit too long, and I think they've they've picked a they've, they've picked a nice time to draw a line under it, so now everyone can look forward to the real season starting. The thing I found interesting is when when following these races, yeah, as well as watching the main feed, you can you can watch some of the drivers' Twitch feeds as well. So George Russell, Charles Leclerc, Lando Norris, loads of them, Louis Delatrat, you know, plenty of them have got a, a Twitch feed. So you see, you can hear them and see their approach and that kind of thing. And the thing that's impressed me about Russell is he's taken it very very seriously, and this this kind of reflects a, a serious driver because even though there's a certain light-hearted element to this series which is in keeping with the game because it's not a hardcore simulation, the, the F1 game. It's, uh, it's meant to be slightly more accessible than that. Um, but I've been impressed to see Russell's approach to it. Obviously, he came in for the second race. I think the, the level that, it, that he needed to be at caught his attention. But he started well, but not brilliantly. And he's put a lot of effort into making sure that he's emerged as the, as the leading driver and, of course, won that unofficial title. And that, to me, I think, says a little bit about George Russell. What do you make? Mark, in general, of, of Russell, because we saw he had this, I think he had a very good season last year, a little bit unseen because the Williams was so uncompetitive and because there were question marks over Robert Kubica in the other car as the one valid benchmark. But there's a lot to be impressed about with, with George Russell, isn't there? There is, and his whole approach is one of um, answering all the questions and uh, being completely prepared and I am. Um, I I noticed Stephen uh, Charles Leclerc was saying um, how amazed he was, but at, at the at the level that Russell had got to in sim racing, and it's as you say, it's a reflection of um, a, a, an attitude of an, a, an approach. And um, before he made his Grand Prix debut in Melbourne last last year, he was talking about because I'd been watching him out on track and. F- first few practices the first couple of practices it was as though he was just data gathering it didn't really look like he was having a, a real attack of the of the place at all and then come qualifying um he did full attack and it was it was very impressive and he'd said oh, that was a just his normal way of working and the same thing had happened when he went to Macau and he, he said you in, in the practices I wasn't in in, in the top 10 in any of the the practice sessions and then I put it on pole that I think is just his way of working and I think it's a shame that 
the statuses of the drivers are sort of frozen as they were at the end of last year with, through losing, losing these races because with the Williams appearing to be able to at least mix it at the back, so the back of the field this year rather than being miles away from the, the next slowest car as it was the case last year. Um, I think we may have seen George have already put in some starring roles, particularly if they've been like a wet race or something like that. Um, and I think his status would be much enhanced now through having this car that at least would enable him to fight. And I think we there would already be a, he'd, he'd be a hotter property, I think. The general perception would be that he's a hotter property than his status at the moment, which is, yes, he's, he's very good and, is, you know, he's a potential Mercedes driver in the future and all that. But I think um, there might be a little bit more of a fever about him if uh, had the, the season already gone ahead as planned. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. He'd had the chance to test himself in proper races, should we say, because he spent a lot of last year almost driving about off the back rather than really, really racing professional as his approach was to it. But I think there's a there's a very, very good driver in there and both in terms of just the fundamental pace and the, the overall intelligence of the approach. And I thought he did very well last year to make the most of limited opportunities. He was never complaining about it. And I think I, I actually rated him as as the best of the rookies last year just because it was a really in fact the, between him uh Norris and Albon was very very close I would say in terms of the overall performance they all did different levels of things impressively according to the level that they were able to to race at shall we say so it's interesting because Russell is a factor in the Mercedes driver uh, argument, should we say? For, well, I'm not sure there's necessarily an argument going on. Obviously, Hamilton and Bottas still aren't fully uh, confirmed for for next year, so perhaps Russell will be will have good reason to be a bit disappointed he hasn't had the chance to really press home his case for a promotion next year. But Scott, if you're in that situation of Mercedes, how would you be viewing Russell? Because obviously, down the road somewhere for Mercedes, there will be a point where they no longer have Lewis Hamilton. Whether that's whether that's he suddenly decides to retire at the end of this contract, which seems very unlikely, you know, he's not going to be ra- he's not going to be racing Formula One probably in ten years' time, is he? So, that there needs to be a succession plan there, and they know what Bottas can do. They know what their hopes are for for Russell. So that will be kind of there in the back of in the back of the minds of the team of Toto Wolff and everyone as to exactly what the best way to progress Russell will be. Yeah, it's not easy to to work out exactly what the the best option is. I, I guess the main hope will be that Williams gets its act together to the point where where Russell can properly mix it in the midfield. Because I I've, I would like to think that I'd like to think that the team would be willing to do what Ferrari did with Charles Leclerc once the driver's sort of proven himself off of the very back of the field. I mean, I think it's fair to say that if Sauber hadn't made the progress it did through the 2018 season um, that I don't think Leclerc would have got the Ferrari drive for 2019 because if they'd carried on where they were at the Australian Grand Prix in the first round, you know, I remember speaking to Fred Vasseur and he joked to me that they were racing the medical car into turn one. Um, If they'd been at the back of the grid like Williams uh, have been, then I just don't think Ferrari would have taken the the punt, for want of a better word, uh, on, on Leclerc. So, if if Russell can get to the point where he's mixing it for Q2 slots and maybe every now and again in the with a chance of sticking it in the top 10 on, on a Sunday, then I feel like Mercedes would go, yeah, do you know what? We, we've seen enough of him in our car. We've seen enough of him in the simulator. We know how quick he is. We know he can execute. He's a good racer. He's fixed his 
turn one weakness if he's really got a turn one weakness or a start weakness uh, he's now ready we're willing to take the punt on him but I just think that Williams has been so far off that it's too big a step to go from comfortably the slowest car to a car capable of winning the, the title there needs to be some kind of intermediate step and that's the difficult thing I'm not really sure where that intermediate step comes from unless Mercedes is able to leverage something within Racing Point or Aston Martin uh, from 2021 or McLaren, which will be a, a Mercedes customer team again, whether that's because Ricardo leaves or because Norris gets snapped up by someone else. I don't know, but I feel like there needs to be an intermediate step before Mercedes is properly comfortable picking George. Blimey, you're talking about Ricardo leaving McLaren before he's even joined. <laughs> <laughs> he's he, he's not even done a race in in his second season at Renault. He's already moved to McLaren, and now I'm now you've got him. him you've got to, where's he team. going? Where, where have you got him going after McLaren? Where's he off to? Uh, I reckon I think he's just going to give up and go surfing. Ah, okay, no, I'm ne- never going to get a drive at Ferrari. There's no point in trying. I'm off to bank my millions and and enjoy the sun in Australia. Right, Tim sorted out. But yeah, I take your point about that. There needs to be an intermediate thing, and the way that Ferrari did it with Leclerc wouldn't um, necessarily be followed. In in fact, if you look back to how Ferrari were progressing Jules Bianchi's career um, before we lost him, he. He'd been in the Marussia, which was just, you couldn't really judge his ultimate level um, in, in a car that far off. And Ferrari had decided for the following year, he was going to be in the Sauber for that very reason, to get a more realistic, um, you know, data point, really. Um, and But I th- I would hope that the Williams this year, the, just the fact that it can be racing with those other cars, if it if, if it can, as, as it looked as it could in, in uh, testing, I think that would probably be enough. Yeah, I think what you want to see is a driver in a situation where consistently tiny differences make a big difference. That's what Leclerc was able to do in his first season with Sauber because that was, you know, sometimes it was quite often a Q3 marginal car and the difference between doing kind of an outstanding job and a very good job could be quite significant in terms of whether you get points or whether you make Q3. And that's a point where you can really show yourself well. And although the Williams isn't going to be probably at that level, if it is you know, marginal where tiny differences will get you into Q2 or, or get you a 10th place rather than a 12th place, that will uh, that will help matters enormously. But I think it's difficult for a team like Mercedes because there is a point where if you've got a driver there, and they'll be able to analyse huge amounts of data about Russell. He's been in the Mercedes F1 car. In fact, you notice when uh, when he does some of his practice stuff, when he twitches it for the uh, uh, for the virtual Grand Prix, he often uh, puts himself in a Mercedes because he quite likes that likes that idea. Uh, so they know what he's capable of, and I think you will have to, if you're making a decision as that team, think actually is there a point where we, even if we can't get an interim step, whether Williams doesn't quite provide it, and he has got. He is going to be at Williams next year if Mercedes don't change anything. Or he can't, he can't get another team that was an interim step. There might come a point where Mercedes have to say, right, actually, if we think this is a guy who can be outstanding, because they know he's very, very good, we know that at the very least, but can he be outstanding? You might have to say, do you know what? We do need to to get him in, but it's all connected to how long they think they'll have Lewis Hamilton for, etc. Because right now, unquestionably in the short term, Hamilton-Bottas is the, is the sensible uh, approach to take. Obviously, you wouldn't not have Hamilton if you could have him but Bottas is a great teammate and performing at a, a high level so uh, yeah it's interesting but I'd, I think Russell no, Russell no, has a good idea of how good he is and he knows where he needs to improve and he, you mentioned the start 
the first lap weakness, as it were. You know, he's very aware of that. I like asking him about it just to be annoying. Uh, and he will say, partly in his defence, that sometimes he was being quite conservative last year and it is difficult down the back because you've got 19 or 18 cars ahead of you disturbing the air. But he did accept that that was an area he just needed to work on a little bit and was expected to this year. And I'm sure he will because he's very good at picking the area to refine. Uh, good approach, uh, intelligent driver, and I think underpinning that is, uh, is a lot of pace. So, uh, yeah, interesting to see uh, how, how he comes on. Now, with a, a due sense of dread, Scott, I am going to hand the floor over to you because, as you very occasionally deign to do, you're, you've chosen not to neglect your people this week, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I just figured with the um, the F1 season now starting to take shape, it was quite a good opportunity to sort of... Uh, to, to, to open the floor to, to, to our listeners or and the readers of the website. Um, has, so, uh, has Scott's people got a theme tune yet? Uh, I was kind of leaving that to you. I thought that you'd be quite good at, um, at coming up with something. You're, you, you're musically talented, aren't you? Uh, well, uh, yeah, that can mean just about anything. But yeah, we, uh, we should probably try and come up with a theme tune for Scott's people. But uh, yeah, for now, we'll just have to have it, Scott's people. There you go. That's a start. Partridge-esque. <laughs> <laughs> very good uh yeah so basically uh i was curious to know uh, uh given we're pretty confident there's going to be bonus european venues and we know that formula one is looking at alternative circuits or layouts rather for for other races for double headers what track do you uh, our listeners and readers want to be the bonus european venue and like the bahrain oval which alternative layouts might you choose for the rest of the year or alternative sort of tracks would you go to uh, and there was a very, very healthy response, ranging from the very pragmatic to the absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I, I'm just basically going to pick these at random so that there's a, there's a nice mix. I was very surprised there were three different... I had three different people, I think. Tom Spencer, Richard Randall, and someone else, I can't remember who, suggested Donington Park. As a, as a bonus European race. Uh, Ton Spencer mentioned it, basically just said it would be retribution for the way Formula One dumped the circuit and put its future in jeopardy, uh, which is obviously a uh, not so... It's a very thinly veiled reference to the, the, the saga around the the Donington track and ho- and stealing the British Grand Prix. What would that have been now? Like 12 years ago, 13 years ago, something like that? Yeah, it took the circuit to its knees. So uh, it would be quite nice. But as I was saying, the I think a bit greedy for the UK, considering we've got two races in uh, at Silverstone. Uh, Freddie Coates, like a few other people, suggested Nürburgring. Uh, if you have a race at Hockenheim, could you then have another race at, uh, at Nürburgring? Or could you just have Nürburgring instead of, of, of Hockenheim? Uh, Freddie also suggested Magni Core, which is, I hadn't seen suggested by anybody else. And Can I endorse Magni Core? Because I, you I love like Magni Core. I think you love it. I think it, I think it's an underrated uh, an underrated circuit. And I think modern cars would be very uh, would work very well on it. I can I concur it. I think uh, my Nico was much maligned. I think it was just because people didn't like being in the middle of the countryside, away from the bright lights. It wasn't to do with the track itself. And um, yeah, I, I thought it was a great venue. Um, we talked about Imola uh, early on. So uh, Freddie, Tom, Gregory, Jake, Nicol. Uh, Jake Jones, uh, KGVE52, uh, I assume that's not their name, uh, and Alex Davey all advocated Imola. And in fact, Alex said Imola every single time. So don't think we'd see a lot of overtakes, but he's just very keen to see what modern F1 cars would look like going around that track, uh, which I think is something that um, quite a few people share. 
Uh, I will rattle off a few of the crazy ones who pretty much completely missed the point of the question, but I'm just going to put them in anyway. Uh, JL said uh, Clement Ferrand. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm up for it, but I think uh, I, don't, I can't imagine that's uh, in any way realistic. Um, Fun, John, John Fellingham said uh, Estoril purely because it was the bonus track on F197 on PS1. Fair. Estoril's licensed. Yeah, because it's as good a track as uh, it's as good a reason as any to to put one on the on the calendar. Uh, I had a couple of suggestions for uh, for Turkey being be, being revived, but I think uh, as much I think everyone would like to see Istanbul Park back on the calendar as from a circuit point of view. I don't know what it was like to go there actually no, for great. a race. Yeah, it was. It was you, I, like, could, I like going to it. Okay, so that's fair. Um, had quite a lot of uh, had a, well, had a shout for a cheeky road race at Pescara. <laughs> Jan, we could call it the Yano Trilli Grand Prix. <laughs> so that's his part of the world. Uh, Richard Randall, as well as suggesting Donington, advocated the return of the Birmingham Super Prix. <laughs> San Sebastian Grand Prix hasn't been held since 1930, I think. I'm I'm all for uh, for visiting very very retro uh, races. Yeah, time to bring it back. Uh, that was the suggestion of uh, George O'Donnell, uh, and then a few uh, a few people advocating uh, Silverstone uh, somehow going back to the old Grand Prix layout. So I'm I guess it's a pre 2010 and using bridge. I think they're quite keen for that. I well, last... that could be anything because there have been about a thousand different <laughs> uh, uh, versions of that circuit. Last year I went to the. Um, I checked out the Silverstone uh, Museum and went out around the, 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 the back of it down onto the old the old circuit uh, bridge corner. And the thing that was, first of all, I just, I, I was really surprised actually being down there like on foot. I was, didn't realise the sort of compression that you have going, going through the corner for starters, but also just seeing old school Formula One curbs was quite cool. Curbs now are just sort of, they're either sausage curbs or they're, quite flat with AstroTurf on the other side and it's just easy to just run over them basically. Um, and actually seeing like the old sort of looking quite uh, rustic, shall we say, curbs, just, you know, it's like, that's like one of the classic forgotten, cor- well not forgotten because everyone loves it and wants it back, but the, one of the old, not, not in use corners anymore of, of Formula One. So there was quite a lot of, there was a lot of people that were being realistic as well, Mugello, uh, Algarve, all the, all circuits that are actually being suggested. A couple of advocations for Brands Hatch as well, and also a couple of advocations for the Circuit de la South. But unfortunately, the full Le Mans circuit does, isn't grade one, is it? It's grade two, I think. Yeah, but you're not going to be able to go on pre there. And in fact, the one time there was a world championship race at, uh, at Le Mans, which was in 67, it was on the Bugatti circuit, which really didn't go right down very well with people. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't like that. So, so yeah, that. A very very healthy smattering of uh, of responses from the uh, from the from the sane and quite fever to the uh, absolutely absolutely mental. So as I've done with a few of these before, I'm now going to throw the questions to you. So for the for the pair of you, I'll start with you, Ed, because I know you like being put on the spot. What would you have as the bonus European venue? Let's say has to have an element of logic and realism to it, but doesn't have to be restricted to the the three or four circuits that we know are 100% having conversations? Well, I, I'm going to stick with Manny Core as my sensible suggestion, try and rebuild the reputation of uh, of that track. You know, nice nice combination of corners, some quick stuff, good car challenge, 
great overtaking spot in the in the Adelaide hairpin. Often created good races, actually. So uh, I, th- I think it got a, a rather unfair reputation, as, as Mark alluded to. Can I can I just throw in a mad suggestion as well? Because I like mentioning this circuit. I'd like to see a return to solitude in Germany. It's near Stuttgart, <laughs> kind of a, a Nürburgring-esque one. Uh, just a, a proper old school, extremely dangerous sort of foresty, undulating road uh, road course. Just uh, that that would be my mad venue to return to. It never host, hosted a world championship race. Did host Formula One races. In fact, a Brabham F1 car I think got their first win there in '63, probably. So got some history. Great place to go. Brilliant. I love that. That's brilliant. Mark, have you got a logical and a mad suggestion? My mad suggestion. I did. I'd agree with your. Um your reader, but Clermont Ferrand, and if you if you go on to YouTube, there's a there's a guy who's um, taking footage of it as it is now from from his car on his car phone, and it's just fantastic. It's it's awesome. So he even like takes you through the gated off bits and shows you where the the cir- the circuit is now being reclaimed by nature, and then j- just walks through that bit, and then he'll take you show you where it comes out, and then continue onwards. And then if you watch that, and then some, there's some black and white footage of the 72 Grand Prix from there, and it's amazing. It's it's absolutely incredible that is re, even as recently as 1972, which um, I know is a long time ago, but it just seems bizarre that it could even be as recent as that that the Grand Prix was actually held there. Um, in terms of uh, from a modern, um, realistic. Uh, track yeah istanbul park for me um a magnificent track um we heard about you know the the big challenge of turn eight which was that like oval like very very fast left-hander that would had about three apexes and that was fantastic but it the, the whole track was and it had in undulation had different sections that were demanded different things of the car and the driver um and i think that was a just a wonderful track really um not uh, not ideally placed geographically. Um, that would that would um, count against it now. But uh, yeah, of all the tracks that we've lost in recent years, that's that's the the one I think um, has lost us the most. Can we can we add uh, Rouen to make a nice French double header with Clermont Ferrand? I think that mm. would be uh, fun. That was another another classic circuit and that was used i think they were still holding f3 races there as, uh, as recently as the early 90s maybe 92 that sort of time they were still using it so uh, most of the tracks still uh, still there in theory all public roads great fun yeah my uh, my suggestion for a slightly mad one would be the first track i think i ever drove on a racing game and therefore it's always had a special place in my heart which is dijon mm. yeah un- unusual choice but yeah yeah I just I don't know why I, I think if I saw it now in reality or saw F1 on there I'd pro- I think I'd probably be underwhelmed because as a as a kid seeing that track and 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 playing it on a video game and then obviously seeing some of the famous clips from from history around there it's got like the it's got the track equivalent of godlike status in my head and I fear that the reality would actually be quite underwhelming but I'd just like to see it because I've always quite liked it. Um, and from a realistic point of view, I mean, I know I said Mugello earlier uh, when it came to sort of what I'd, I'd like to see uh, from the, the tracks that they're actually talking about. I, I, part of me would just, if I could go there and actually see it firsthand, it would be Imola. Um, it's interesting that it actually seems to be in the in, in the conversation. Um, it's a track I've always wanted to go to and never been able to. So, so that, that, would, uh, that would be quite a good pick. 
Yeah, Imola's a, Imola's a great place. It's uh, dropped out of Formula 1 just before I started covering it, but I have been there and it's, uh, yeah, cracking, uh, a cracking place to go. I think we've got some uh, some good plans there, so just uh, a nice mixture of uh, of mad circuits and uh, realistic circuits. Should we just submit this section of the podcast to, to Ross Braun and Chase Carey and just say, here you go, here's the rest of your season? Yeah, it's solved, solved all the problems and utterly realistic as well. Easy. Uh, well, thanks very much for that, uh, Scott. Are you, are you setting a new Scots people question for, for next week, or are you going to ask for more suggestions, or do you have some other master plan? Uh, I don't have a ma- I, I never have a master plan. Uh, I I would like to uh, I, I would like to take this one step further into the surreal and go just no no restrictions whatsoever. What's the what's the sort of whack, wackiest place to have uh, your, your Formula One race? I've I've had a couple of suggestions already because I've had a couple of people advocating Brands Indy. Yeah, that would be uh, that be interesting. We could uh, we could go back to Arvis. With the extreme banking uh, corners as well, that'd be fun. But not what, not close, not close it to public traffic. The, yeah, that's the autobahn section, bit, wouldn't it? That's only mildly more unrealistic than holding a Grand Prix on the closed circuit. To be quite mm. honest, so uh, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Exactly. So there you go. There's the question for the next edition of uh, of Scots People. We descend. We turn this week's question into the realms of uh, insanity and full on creativity. So if you've got one circuit. Where would it be? And I'm going to start off with Cadwell Park. So if anyone else can 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 pick that up, I will. I'll, I'll throw the question out on Twitter as well. We can see what madness it brings. Well, we get in the under two liter because there's a two liter cap, isn't there, on the Cadwell Park for single seats or something? I can't remember the exact rule, but so yeah, that's uh, that's a very narrow circuit. So that would be uh, be an interesting one, undulating to say the say the least. Yeah, I, I, I approve of that one. Uh, so. Thank you very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Hopefully we've come up with some sensible insight as well as some mad ideas uh, in that podcast. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads on the latest in the world of Formula One. The calendar continues to evolve, so plenty to delve into there. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Search for The Race. Loads of videos cropping up there on F1 Matters both current and uh, retrospective, so lots there. And, of course, we've got other podcasts, the Gary Anderson F1 show, uh, eSport podcast, Formula E podcast, plenty to listen to there. And, of course, Bring Back V10, which revisits classic F1 stories. Our first series is there to listen to. And we have had a second season commission, so there'll be more of those podcasts coming up. Thanks for listening. We're off to familiarise ourselves with the 18,000 words of FIA documents about how motor racing will be held, and we will see how that will affect future editions of the podcast. <laughs>